I think one that I use a lot when I'm trying to figure out if something's even worth writing about it all is just to ask. Um, this came from another editor here, Andrea Ovens, who's now retired. But she said, you know, I think if I if I ask five smart people for advice on something and I sort of collected all the advice that I received from them and put it into a piece. If that's the piece, that's like not enough for an article because like that's probably just common sense. And like you don't really need to write an article if it's just full of common sense. So I think that's something where I kind of use that rule of thumb to judge if something's even worth working on or even worth writing in the first place. Welcome to How I Work, a show about the tactics used by leading innovators to get so much out of their day. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm an organizational psychologist, the CEO of Inventium, and I'm obsessed with finding ways to optimize my workday. My guest today is Sarah Green Carmichael. Sarah is an executive editor at Harvard Business Review, where she works out what to publish on the site and edits the articles that you may have read there. Sarah is also the host of HBR's IdeaCast podcast, which gets over 1 million downloads every month. I was very excited to speak to Sarah as I am a voracious HBR reader. And given the amount of ideas and tips that she's exposed to on a daily basis, given her role, I was very keen to explore what she's actually applied in her own life. We cover a heap of ground in this interview, ranging from some gems on how to be a better writer through to how to read a business book in under 30 minutes. Over to Sarah to find out about how she works. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I, I'm really keen to to get stuck into the things that you're doing to improve your day, improve your productivity, because in your role as executive editor at HBR and also having been an editor for six years there, you must have read literally thousands of articles offering advice. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, I think that is fair to say. Now, I'm curious, what have, what have been some of the best pieces of advice you've read on the topic of productivity? And I'm particularly keen to hear about the ones that you've actually applied in, in your own life. Yeah. So I think for me, a big challenge productivity wise has always been email. I have really, this is something that is the lifeblood of my business. So many of the people I work with are not in the building. So email is really important to me, but also I never would have time to actually edit anything or do anything if I were only responding to email. So one of the tips that I read in HBR actually that I have also tried to apply to my own life is to check email at certain times of day. So, you know, maybe I check at 9am and again at noon and again at four and Maybe it doesn't always quite work that way, but I, I try to sort of have dedicated time to respond to email so it doesn't take over the whole day. And I think it's helped. So what time of day do you allocate to emails? So I have it kind of rotating blocks of time depending on my other things, but I really do put it in my calendar. So I probably spend, I try to make an effort to spend like the last 40 minutes of the day just catching up on email. And I try to do a sort of 40 minute chunk in the morning too, just so that no one is ever sort of waiting for too, too long. That's interesting because I, I, I imagine a lot of advice that you've read about email would also say, don't check email first thing in the morning. Is that something that you've ever tried to apply or is it just the nature of the work that you do that that's just an impossibility? I would say so. 
I typically do at least look at it in the morning, but I don't always respond. So I, I sort of look at it to see, is anything on fire? And then if nothing is actually on fire, then I will take an hour or an hour and a half and actually do some heads down important work. Um, but I do like to at least look at the inbox to make sure that there's really nothing urgent or, or pressing that really needs to be addressed. And I typically don't check email after... 6.30 or 7 at night. Um, so that's something where, you know, I, I sort of check in the morning to make up for the fact that I, I try to have a hard stop at the end of the day when I, I just unplug. Wow, that, that, that's very disciplined. Like, have you, have you always been that way in terms of unplugging, uh, I guess, you know, in, in the evenings or when you go home at night? I have not been that way. That is something that I really had to learn because I think especially when you work in digital media, you you do sort of expect to be always on. And I sort of had to realize, you know, I work in publishing. I'm not saving lives here. Like the work I do matters to me, but it, nothing too terrible will happen if I just don't check email at night. And I checked with my boss. I said, you know, is this okay? And she said, yeah, I think so. And I said, you know, if anything really important comes up, people can always call me. Like we do have this thing called the phone that people use in emergencies. So I, I think sort of thinking of it that way really helps. Yeah. Was that a hard habit for you to break? I'm um, just like, you know, the addictive nature of email. So the email habit was relatively easy to break compared to the social media habit that I'm still struggling to break. So that is sort of the current project is becoming unaddicted to social media. Ah, tell me about that. Oh, I just think that those all those platforms are optimized to hook us in and they really work. And I, you know, it's something where, you know, especially if I'm traveling for work, I'm away from my family, I can easily find myself wasting, you know, an hour on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something. And then it's you know, that's not really how you want to spend your precious moments. So I don't have advice on that one yet. But if any, if anyone listening has advice, I would love to know. You could probably tweet it at me because <laughs> I'll Absolutely. probably be checking. <laughs> cool. I love it. And and what else? What, what have been some other gems of, of advice that you've read and applied successfully? Yeah. So one of the things that really just helped me with my what I think of as my real work, my work work, uh, as, as opposed to managing email, um, was trying to stop when I come to a stopping point at the end of the day, stopping when I'm on a roll on a project and not stopping when I'm stuck. So I, I think a lot of us have a tendency to want to see something through to the end. And that's what makes us good employees. But I find it much easier to pick back up where I left off the next day if I have sort of stopped in the middle instead of at a natural kind of stopping point. And that's something that um, I actually picked up um, from reading about the daily routines of artists. I know like this is something that Hemingway did. This is something that Arthur Miller did. Um, it's something where, you know, you kind of, you never drain the reservoir. You always leave a little bit of something left in the tank so that when you pick it back up, it's really easy to just get going again. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Hemingway used to, to stop mid-sentence or mid-paragraph, didn't he? Yes, and you just kind of like, you, you just, I think what he said was, you know, you write until you come to a place where you still have the juice and you, you don't ever want to sort of run out of juice. And that's something I remind myself because I think a lot of us will kind of just keep going until we're totally burnt out. And, and actually, you know, that's, that's ultimately, that's pretty counterproductive. Absolutely. And, and how do you know when you've reached that point at the end of the day? Like, what does that feel like? Well, for me, what has really worked is to have specific times because otherwise it is too easy for me just to keep working. I have an enormous capacity for work, so I, I will probably always find work to do. So 
I just try to know, if I, am I stopping at four o'clock, at five o'clock, at six o'clock? You know, what is my stopping point today? And then if I sort of come to that point and I have thoughts that I don't want to forget because I'm in the middle of a project, I just jot them down. I put them on a post-it note. I leave them on my desk and I go home. Now, on the flip side, because these, these sounds like great pieces of advice that you've learned and applied, um, I'm curious as to are there things like things that you've read in the research or advice that, that you've heard or read that you did try to apply but absolutely didn't work for you? Yeah. So the only touch it once rule is a classic one. Um, and that doesn't work for me. The idea is that, you know, something comes across your desk, something comes into your email and, you know, you immediately decide what to do with it. You, you only touch it once. And that has just never worked for me. A lot of the decisions I have to make at work are pretty complex. I have to get input from other people. I have to do additional research. You know, I can't just sort of make decisions on the fly, although I often do make a bunch of decisions on the fly, I can't follow that kind of rule. So that was one that just to me felt overly simplistic and, and kind of not something that was going to um, work for me. Yeah. So so how do you make your, your best decisions at work then? Hmm. Um, let me think about that. I think so. I think what I try to keep in mind is that part of my job is my job is making decisions. That is my job. I, you know, deciding whether or not we publish something, deciding what the headline should be on a piece, um, you know, deciding what, what feedback to give to someone. And so I think the worst thing you can do if your job is to make decisions is to not make decisions. So I, I, when I am sort of stuck, I kind of, I try to make a decision, but knowing that even a bad decision is better than no decision at all. So I, I, that's just something that sort of helps me keep moving forward. Um, and then, you know, I, I think one sort of struggle, especially um, for women, and there is sort of some research on this, like we're supposed to be much more consensus driven. That's the behavior that's expected of us. And I think at some point, yes, fact finding and building buy-in and all that stuff can be helpful. But at some, at some point, you just have to decide. And so I, I think that's something too, where over time kind of learning what decisions can I just make, you know, without sort of going through this whole process of consensus building and where do it, does it really matter to get a lot of, of feedback from other people? That's something you just kind of learn over time. Mm, and is that a confidence thing or like trusting your intuition more? What, what's that about? Do you think? I think it's about just trying some things and making mistakes and learning from them. You know, I have not always made the right decisions. And so, um, you know, for once, for an example, um, you know, this 2016 presidential election in the U.S. was like pretty hotly contested uh, and is still being mm -hmm. uh, controversial and relitigated in some ways. And, you know, HBR doesn't often publish on political issues, but we did publish a couple pieces tied to some of the leadership and economic issues that were brought up by the campaign. And ultimately, we decided that there has to be an extra layer of editorial review on those articles because um, I have published a couple pieces that I just sort of felt like, yeah, well, you know, we're a platform for debate. People can have debates, you know, and I think I was a little too quick to pull the trigger on those pieces and say like, yeah, let's just publish them and see where the chips land. Um, so <laughs> I think that's just one where, <laughs> yeah, sort of learned like, oops, like that's not really what readers want from us or expecting <laughs> from us. And 
it at least is helpful in the organization to have some more people read the piece and know that it's going live before we just publish it and, and kind of say, oh, well, you know, people on the internet just say things. <laughs> so, yeah. And like, you know, that shows someone where I, ma- I made a call, I made a mistake and I learned. Yeah, that, that must be quite stressful given how public, like the work that you do is. Um, like, how, how, how do you deal with, with stresses like that? Do you, do you kind of have like go-to strategies? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the things that I love about digital media is that you are constantly publishing new things and you sort of, it's sort of like playing baseball and that you, you, you play every day and you have multiple at bats every day. Um, and what you're trying to do is improve your average over time. So very few of the decisions I make are hugely consequential in and of themselves, but over time, they will add up to something that amounts to a lot. So I think that keeping that in mind kind of takes some of the stress away because it's like, well, any individual decision is not going to be a make or break decision. What we're hoping to do is have a winning average by the end of the year. Yeah, I like that. Now, I saw back uh, in 2003, you wrote your honors thesis on Jane Austen, and you also won the essay contest of the Jane Austen Society of North America. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What what advice would Jane Austen have for, for the modern woman? Oh my gosh, so much advice. Her advice is still so <laughs> relevant. And in fact, it's a part of me thinks that if she were, you know, alive and well today, she would have written her version of Lean In or something that would also have been a bestseller. Because um, I think, so one, one of the things that I've always liked about Jane Austen is that she definitely believes in following your heart. You know, all of her heroines do that. But they also have a strong practical streak to all of them where it's like, listen, is this going to work in the real world or not? Um, And so I think, I think her advice to the modern woman would be a little bit of, yeah, have your head in the clouds, but keep your feet on the ground. Um, And, you know, kind of know when you can hold out for a better deal, but also don't, you know, don't let a good thing pass by because you're just waiting for something that's perfect because perfection doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist. That's nice. I, I like that. I like that. I, I want to shift into one of the other parts of your role, which is hosting the HBR IdeaCast podcast, uh, which I believe has over 1 million downloads each month. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Now, I'm curious, how how do you prepare for a podcast? Because I've got to say, I, I love your interviews. I, I always learn so much from that particular podcast. And I want to know what, what goes into preparing for an interview? Oh, thank you. Um, So I think this kind of uh, harks back to something we talked about earlier, which is, right, the question of productivity and how do you know when you've done enough? Um, So what I try to do for the podcast, um, whether it's um, the HBR IdeaCast, which I've been hosting for about 10 years now, or our Women at Work podcast, which is uh, still less than a year old, um, I, I try to read a bunch of articles if the art, if the interview is going to be based on a book, I try to read parts of the book. I don't always read the whole book, but I, I read the introduction and I kind of speed read a bunch of the chapters and then figure out where I'm going to focus. And then I focus in depth on those. Um, and I, I do think it's that kind of thing where it's really important to prioritize that way because I, I don't have time to deeply read the entire book and do a bunch of extra research. Uh, so I really am, you know, relying on 
the ability to quickly figure out what are what is going to be the most interesting to the people who are listening to the show and how can I sort of spend my time there knowing that I, I just don't have time to cover everything. So I, I do try to be selective. Um, I do prepare. I do write down a bunch of questions. I write a bunch more questions than I think I'll need because sometimes people talk a lot. Sometimes people are very concise. You just never know which way it's going to go. Um, but then I also prepare to listen. I think, um, you know, Sometimes people say things and if you're not listening, you kind of zone out and miss it. And then you've missed a good opportunity to, to go down an interesting rabbit hole. So I don't know. Those are just some of the things I try to keep in mind. I'm curious around how you speed read a book. So you say you, you read the introduction and then you'll kind of skim over the different parts. Like what, what does that look like practically and, and how long does that, that take you? I just want to get a sense, like how, how would you apply that? Yeah, so this is like where I'm almost embarrassed to say, <laughs> but I will say. So, I, yeah, so I try to like spend five or 10 minutes is usually enough time to like read the introduction, I would say. Um, maybe closer to five. And then I'm looking at the table of contents. I sort of flip to the beginning of each chapter. I flip through to see what it's about. The, the good thing about business books is there tend to be like very straightforward chapter titles and subheadings. So it's actually really easy to kind of find the information that you you might want to find. Um, and then I kind of, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it helps that I um, read so much for my, my job anyway. Like so much of what I do is evaluating people's articles or pitches and quickly just sort of looking at them to see, is there an idea here or not? So I sort of am applying the same skill that I use in the other parts of my job to this part. I would say there are times when I don't spend probably more than 30 minutes preparing for an interview, which I'm sure if, you know, someone like Terry Gross would be appalled, but I'm not <laughs> Terry Gross, you know, I'm not doing this as my full-time job for national <laughs> public radio. So um, it is the kind of thing where I, I decide how much time I have and then I spend that amount of time. And I think that's just sort of a daily, like a, a general productivity tip that I just try to apply to all my work. It's like, how much time do I have? Okay, like that's the amount of time I'll spend. I'm curious though, how how do you know when you've done enough preparation? Like is it a feeling that you get? Like do you just intuitively think, okay, I feel prepared enough? Or is it, is it literally this is how much time I've got and I'll feel prepared as I can at the end of this amount of time? Yeah, and I think it depends a lot on the topic too because there are some interviews where, um, you know, if it's a topic I know a lot about, or I, I know the author's work kind of already, um, then it takes much less time to prepare. And I can feel super prepared in half an hour easily. And I should also say, you know, we often do a pre-interview with the person, which is maybe only 15 or 20 minutes, but it sort of gives you a chance to run through some of the ideas you're thinking about and, and kind of get a sense of how they sound. Um, and I, I have producers who help out on the show too. So I can kind of bounce my ideas off of them, which is, which is helpful. And they can give their ideas to me. So, um, but I think in terms of like knowing when you're prepared, I think, um, I think, you know, that's something that I think is just, I don't know. I don't know. Like there's definitely times when you feel confident and like, okay, I've got this, but that's not always proportional to the amount of time that I've spent. Um, and I, I think one of the things that is challenging, I, I see sometimes younger people in the office, um, any office, sort of 
over preparing so that they feel really confident and prepared. And I think, yes, especially when you're earlier in your career, it's good to over prepare because it often pays off. But I think as you move up the ladder, you kind of have to get more comfortable feeling unprepared and just knowing that you're going to have to be comfortable improvising and just kind of winging it anyway. And so I think, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a very muddled answer to what was a really good question, but it's just one of those things that, you know, I, I think you kind of have to, to both know how to prepare quickly, but also how to proceed, even if you feel totally unprepared. Hmm, I, I think that makes sense. And I, I want to come back to what you said about the pre-interview, because I want to know what, what role does the pre-interview play for you? To me, the pre-interview is about two things. It's really about making sure that the guest feels comfortable because I, even if I'm winging it, I don't want them to feel like they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, but it's also about giving me a sense of, you know, will this person talk for uninterrupted chunks of time? You know, am I going to have to interrupt them sort of more to, to help them kind of stay on track? Um, it's about if there's like two ways I could ask a question, sometimes in the pre-interview, we'll ask them each way to see kind of how, which way they respond to more. Or it's about saying, you know, we'd love to get some of your stories out. You know, are there stories that you tell about this topic so that maybe during the pre-interview, we have them tell two or three or four stories. But then in the podcast, I know the exact one I want to ask them about. So we don't kind of spend that extra time. I like that. That's nice. Um, and I imagine that you must interview people that you either dislike or disagree with. How, how do you deal with like managing yourself in those situations? That is such a great question. I, I have a little bit of a cop-out answer, which is if I really disagree with something, I don't have that person on one of the shows that I host. So <laughs> if I think someone's idea is just dumb or stupid, I'm not going to give them the platform that HBR has to offer them. Um, now, that said, there are times when in the course of an interview, someone says something that I think is not backed up by the data, or I'm not quite sure, or I, you know, I'm kind of skeptical. And in that case, I just, I say, I try to sort of interject and say, well, you know, a skeptic might hear what you've just said there and wonder about this other thing and kind of say, well, some of our listeners might be wondering, well, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, in some, in some of those cases, the listener who is wondering is me. Um, but I think, you know, just, just kind of remembering that you were really there to serve the listeners and ask the questions that they would want to ask. Um, I, I try to do that, but I don't often get super flustered or like angry during an interview I'm doing because usually the people who would make me super angry aren't even on the show to begin with. <laughs> Fair enough. That That's probably a good strategy. Uh, I, I want to shift into writing and uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago you, you tweeted your top writing tips um, on, on Twitter, which I think was a good use of social media time. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I want to read out some of them and, and then I want to delve into like, how did you learn to write? Um, because I, cause I think like in this day and age and, and my mum's a writer and she's always kind of lamenting the fact that they don't teach grammar at school like they used to and so forth. But um, I want to read out some of your pieces of advice. So, so the first one, read your draft aloud. If you stumble over parts of it, readers will too. Love that. Have fun. If you're not having fun, readers won't either. And never end an article with some version of time will tell. It's a cop out. <laughs> Three great pieces of, um, of advice there. So I want to know, how, how did you learn to write? 
Uh, well, I have to say, um, my mother really shaped me early on. She also was an editor. Um, and from the very first things that I wrote as a little, little kid, um, and in my very first essays for school, she really walked me through the editing process. And I, I think that's such a gift because a lot of Edit, editing is really about taking what you have and making it better. It's not about rewriting. It's not about starting over. And I think, especially at a young age, that's what a lot of budding writers do. They, they, they don't really know what editing is. They, they just sort of start again and write a different version. Um, and so I was really lucky to have my mom there to, to kind of teach me about that. Um, and then I think one of my formative experiences was in college. I worked at uh, the writing center where uh, peer students give feedback to other students. So working as a peer tutor to others really taught me a lot about how to coach someone in the writing process and sort of specific editing tips that I still use in my job today. Uh, and that's, for example, where I learned that, you know, you should read it aloud. If it doesn't sound good read aloud, it, you know, doesn't quite work on the page either. So a lot of that stuff I actually learned in a college tutoring class. And then, you know, I've had really good mentors in the professional world. So uh, Amy Bernstein, the editor of HBR, has said something that's really stuck with me, which is when you're editing something, you know, you really have to ask yourself, am I making this different or am I making this better? And if you're just making it different, you know, maybe you don't make that change. Um, so it's the kind of thing that you can really spend a lifetime honing. And I, I think I've been really lucky to have a lot of people guide me along the way. And uh, I, I love that piece of advice you just mentioned there. What, what, have, what have been some of um, the other great pieces of advice that, that you've maybe received about your own writing to make your own writing better or to make your own editing process better? Yeah, I think one that I use a lot when I'm trying to figure out if something's even worth writing about it all is just to ask. Um, this came from another editor here, Andrea Ovens, who's now retired. But she said, you know, I think if I if I ask five smart people for advice on something and I sort of collected all the advice that I received from them and put it into a piece, if that's the piece, that's like not enough for an article because like that's probably just common sense. And like you don't really need to write an article if it's just full of common sense. So I think that's something where I kind of use that rule of thumb to judge if something's even worth working on or even worth writing in the first place. Um, so that's one that I, that I come back to a lot. Um, another, another kind of piece of advice that I got was to always make sure that the examples in the article actually show the idea working. It's amazing how many times you read an, an article and it kind of has this interesting theory and then it has this example. But if you really stop and think about it, the example doesn't always show the idea in action. So that's something that I kind of am always kicking the tires on a little bit. I think, you know, another another thing I just have sort of noticed on my own as I've been editing now for a number of years is most of us spend a good bit of time kind of throat clearing as we're getting into writing a draft. So almost all the time in my own writing and when I'm editing other people's writing, those first two paragraphs probably can be deleted. Like they they, they serve the purpose of helping you start writing the thing, like that is what they are for. But then when you're revising, probably your third or fourth paragraph is where actually your article starts. Mm, I, I like that one a lot. That's really interesting. That's such great advice. Um, I, I, I want to sort of delve into the editing part of your role a bit more because I, I would imagine editing requires such intense focus and 
we obviously started this interview talking about things that are distracting like email, like social media. What are your strategies for staying on task and staying focused and warding off those digital distractions when you do have like an intense focus task to do? So I think the best thing I do actually is I just work from home one day a week. Um, And I'm really lucky to have a boss who's totally on board with that. But to me, being in a space that has minimal distractions, a space that I can control. You know, we have an open office here, which is really great for collaborating, but it's not so great when you just need to focus. So to me, I get more done in that one day a week at home than I do probably in all the other days combined when it comes to actually editing. Um, The other thing that I have just learned about myself is that I get a ton of editing done on um, trains and planes. because you're kind of strapped into the seat, you don't have Wi-Fi. So I actually, I try as much as possible if I'm traveling for work, I try to take day flights so that I can have that time on the airplane to work. Um, If I have to go down, you know, from Boston to New York, I always take the train so that I have the four hours on the train to work. That time becomes disproportionately precious to me. So really it's about physically removing myself from the distraction of the internet and the distraction of other people to, to, to really be able to sit down and focus. I like that. I think it was Oscar Wilde that said, we can resist everything except temptation. So I guess that's what yes. you're doing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, nice. Do you ever procrastinate? Oh, yes. Oh, all the time. <laughs> and it's, um, I will say, I, I, I try to... If I notice that I'm procrastinating, I try to ask myself, why? Is it because the task is hard? I'm not sure if I know how to do it. Is it because it's unpleasant? Is it because I'm in a guilt spiral because I've already put it off for so long that now the thought of starting just reminds me of how much time I've wasted? You know, I try to just be a little bit mindful of that because that usually helps me get over it. Like if it's an email that I need to respond to and I just keep putting it off, I just sort of say to myself, you know, it's only going to get worse the longer you wait. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all procrastinate. I, I think even those of us who have a bias to action and get a lot done, there are certain things that we just, for some reason, keep putting off. And I think that's just, a, that's just human nature. I like that strategy, though, of, of kind of doing that check-in with yourself. Does, does that almost happen automatically now for you? Or is that like on a good day, that's what you'll do, but on a bad day, something else will happen? It's it's gotten easier over time to do that. That that took a long time for me to learn because um, it used to just be that the, the sort of certain emails or certain projects would just sort of linger in the bottom of my inbox until suddenly my whole inbox was the stuff I'd been putting off, um, which then meant that it was like too daunting. Um, so I, I think that's that's something. And the other thing that has really helped me avoid procrastinating is blocking out time on my calendar for certain things. So um, one of the things that I often procrastinate is evaluating new pitches of new ideas for HBR because um, anytime I'm evaluating new pitches, it means I will have to sit down and write rejections and writing rejection letters is my least favorite thing to do. So I just have an hour on my calendar every week that's just for writing rejections so that I can just sit down and just get it done and make myself do it and just move on. Have you mastered the art of of writing like a a polite or nice rejection letter? I try. I try. I try to always be brief, clear, 
and to give a reason. Because I think, you know, you don't really need to like belabor it most of the time. Uh, people are just sort of looking for a yes or no answer. Um, but I always try to say, you know, thank you for sharing this idea with me. I'm so glad you thought of HBR. And then this isn't going to work. We've already covered it. Or, you know, this just isn't quite the right fit for our audience. I try to give some reason, even if it's not detailed feedback, and then just sort of thank them again. But I always try to keep in mind that, um, you know, people can forward these emails to anyone. You know, once I send that email, it's like out there in the world. So not only do I want the people reading it to have an okay experience, given that they're being rejected, uh, I also try to keep in mind, even if there are times when I might be tempted to send a kind of stroppy email or sort of flaming kind of, oh, I can't believe you sent this to me. Because like, we all have bad days. <laughs> We're all tempted sometimes to do that. Um, I, I think, do I want to? do I want this to end up on like Buzzfeed, <laughs> you know? And, and like, no, I don't. I want to treat people kindly and with compassion. How, how easy is it to make those decisions? Like with, with people pitching ideas to HBR, whether they be for an article or a book, like, like how, how easy is it for you to decide, yes, this is absolutely suited to HBR or no, it's not. Is, is that quite a quick decision now? given the, the length of time that, that you've been making these decisions? I think it's usually pretty clear. I think what is tough is that there is like a small percentage of articles that are really, I'm really on the fence about. And even though that's a very small percentage of articles, because it's usually like, this is great, or like, no, this just isn't going to work. Um, it's that It's that percentage in the middle that causes me the most angst, because that's the one where it's like, with enough time and work, this could really work, you know? And then it's like, but is it really worth investing that time in, in this as opposed to some other thing? So those are the ones that, that really kind of keep me up at night. So how do you go about making those decisions? Well, I think it's a question of priorities. You know, I think it's like, is this an author I'm really excited about? Do I think they have more in them? And this could be a learning experience. Um, you know, usually if it's a brand new author, I'm more willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because I think, well, let's try it and see if their next submission is better. If it's someone who's submitted, you know, five good pieces and then they send one that's not so good, I'm probably just going to say, like, you missed the mark with this one. Like, I'll catch you next time. So there's like sort of different priorities that that kind of go into it. And it's based on the topic. If it's a topic I love or that we need more content on, I'm more likely to spend more time on it. But yeah, it's really tough. And, and, you know, I'll be honest, like anyone who works in journalism knows that there are certain times of year that are, are kind of more quiet than other times of year. And if you are sending me something in the last week of December, when I am the only one in the office, and we really need stuff to publish, like, you have a better chance of being published <laughs> than if you send it on January 1st when everyone's like, my New Year's resolution is to be a published author and like, here's a draft. <laughs> so, oh gosh, <laughs> that's funny. I know, it's, um, sometimes it's just luck of the draw. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Look, your, your work life is all about reading, writing, editing and consuming nonfiction. What, what role does fiction play in your life? I love fiction and I majored in English in college literature and I have a book club now and every time my book club picks up nonfiction book I, I'm just like no that's what I do for work <laughs> um, so I love reading fiction and there is even some research I've read that shows that when you read fiction it activates a part of your brain that helps you empathize more with other people and imagine new things and it sort of shapes that part of your brain that's really about imagining 
the world as it could be, not just seeing the world as it is. So to me, fiction is really important both for managing stress, but also for flexing those other parts of the brain that are just really important parts that are that are about kind of inventing new things and not just maximizing efficiency. I love that. Now, I, I want to finish with with a few questions around what what you're consuming right now, because I think it's so hard for the average listener to know, like, what are the best things to be reading, listening to and so forth. So so to start with, given we're just talking about books, what what have been like a, a couple of great books, nonfiction or fiction that, that, that you've read in the last few months? Hmm. I should have known that question was coming. Now it's like the test to see, can I actually remember any of the things that I, <laughs> that I read? Um, well, I will say, having given kind of a highfalutin answer about, about fiction, the importance of fiction, uh, I read a ton of mysteries. So I, you know, there's a ton of sort of murder mysteries, cozy style mysteries out there that I have read that I loved. So I've been on a real Agatha Christie binge um, I read a lot of the Louise Penny mysteries. If anyone um, out there likes them, she's a, a Canadian author I, I really like. Um, so I've been reading a lot of those. I also have been reading, so I just finished uh, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Um, I really like her books. Um, one of her, my authors actually recommended her stuff to me and I, I really enjoyed those. Um, just really powerful stories about kind of I think I would describe them as sort of the bond between mother and child and, and kind of how that can be just sort of that bond and all its complexity, I think is, is interesting. Um, yeah. And then I read a wonderful book last year. Um, it's been out for a while, but Commonwealth by Ann Patchett. I also really liked. Um, so it's from the sort of more literary end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, those were just a couple. Fantastic. And how about podcasts? What podcasts are you loving right now? Yes. Well, as you may have guessed from my love of murder mysteries, I do have a real weakness for true crime podcasts. So um, <laughs> that's just something I have a really long commute. I don't have a ton of downtime in my life between, um, you know, being maximally productive at work and, and other stuff. So my listening to true crime podcasts on my commute is my like me time. Um, so that's just something that I, you know, I do. <laughs> and, and what are your go-to ones? What are the best ones? Yeah. So I, one of the ones I really love is in the dark. They've done two seasons, um, investigative reporting. I think both seasons are really, really good. Um, I find out about new crime podcasts to listen to from a show called crime writers on where they review other shows. And that's like a great, way for me to figure out sort of other new new podcasts I might want to listen to. Um, a really, I will tell you a really random one that I have really been into that's not about crime, but it's about gardening, which is another one of my hobbies. It's called Let's Argue About Plants. It is literally two people <laughs> arguing about plants. <laughs> I love the name of that podcast. I really like, you know, one I've been really into lately is um, Radio Lab uh, did a show called More Perfect. That's all about the U.S. Supreme Court that I've found really interesting. Um, so I kind of try to use the podcasts. I mean, I have like business and leadership podcasts I listen to as well. But mostly what I'm, I try to do with podcasts is really say like, OK, this is my time to learn about other things that are not business. And so much of my work life is sort of management and leadership and, and business stuff like that. Fantastic. How about e-newsletters? Are there any e-newsletters that you actually look forward to reading and receiving? 
That's a good question. You know, I have not gotten as into the newsletter thing as some other people.、Um, is there a newsletter that you really like that you think that I should listen to? Oh, I quite like Morning Brew. You read them, you yeah, yeah. Them. Morning Brew, okay. Morning Brew, and I'll link to all these in the show notes.、Um, it's it's just a really nice summary、um, and done in a really funny kind of way.、Um, funny as in hilarious, not odd.、Uh, about the 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 news that、um, has just been over the last twenty four hours. So yeah, I quite I quite like that one. Okay, cool. I will check that one out. Yeah, and how about? I know this is probably like asking you to pick your favorite child, but but what's been your favorite or maybe one of your favorite articles? That's appeared, you know, on HBR this year. Oh, this year. Okay, so, well, there's one article that we published relatively recently that I think would be of interest, given some of the things we've been talking about today.、Um, it is by a researcher whose name is Reese Westerland, and it's all about why. People, but especially women, volunteer for tasks that don't lead to promotions. And in fact, the title of the article is "Why Women Volunteer for Tasks That Don't Lead to Promotions."、Um, and I think it's the kind of thing where if you are the person who, when your boss or someone in a meeting says, "Oh, does anyone want to take notes? Oh, will anyone be available to you know help clean up after this meeting?" If you're the person who always does that stuff or who volunteers to be on the sort of most Boring committee because no one else will do it.、Uh, I strongly recommend you check it out because it's the kind of thing that you know we were saying earlier. All like we only have twenty four hours in a day. Everything in life involves some kind of trade off. If you spend time on X, you won't have time to spend time on Y. And if you're spending your time on these low value tasks,、um, your colleagues might. Be grateful that they don't have to do them, but you will not get promoted for doing that stuff. So, for people who want to advance in their career but feel bogged down by these things, I think that's really one that's that's worth checking out. I love the sound of that. And finally, how how can people find you and the work that you're doing? Yes. So I think I mean if they want to, that would be awesome.、Um, they can find me on Twitter at sk green.、Um, I would love it if they would be interested in subscribing to a couple of the podcasts I host. I host the HBR Idea Cast and also Women at Work, which is also from HBR.、Um, and yeah, people want to follow those. That that would be great. Fantastic. Well, look, I've loved our chat and I've learned so much. So thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I really had a fun time talking with you. Hello there. That's it for today's episode. If you liked it, there are plenty of others that you might enjoy, such as my chat with Nancy Duarte, the global expert on presentations, where we talk about how she prepares for her own presentations. Or you might enjoy one of my mini episodes where I share some simple science-backed productivity tips that I've discovered in the research. Finally, it's great getting feedback from listeners such as yourself. So I'd love it if you give this podcast a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you can be alerted whenever new episodes are released. See you next time.